With patience first, and patience last, and doggedness all through, a man can think the wildest thoughts and make them all come true. That quote is from George Psychudakis. Uh, that's a Greek name, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right. And it comes from the book Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall. Uh, the book is about the uh, Cretan resistance fighting during World War II. It was really an interesting book. And it, it, McDougall expands it into, to cover more than just that. He, he talks about the paleo diet and CrossFit and and what is a natural life? What is it that humans have evolved to do and how humans are evolved to act and, and move their bodies? But uh, the, the part of the book that focuses on these resistance fighters on Crete were, was really, really interesting. Crete, I didn't realize, was this key strategic point for the Nazi expansion. It was a uh, place where they could put supplies before they were shipped off to Rommel in Africa, and it was a place where they could also put supplies for an attack on Russia. And because these Cretan resistance fighters, these Greeks on the island, put up so much of a fight uh, on their own and then thanks to uh, support from different British agencies, they were able to slow down this Nazi expansion and this, this Nazi one-two punch where they were hoping to knock out certain areas of the world so that they could direct most of their forces to, uh, to other areas. Another takeaway from reading this book was the uh, value and enrichment and delight you can get for reading about an area before you go there. I would love to go to the island of Crete someday and walk these same paths McDougal walked and see some of these areas that the freedom fighters lived. Plus, it's an area of great history. There's uh, different gods that have been born on the island of Crete and Crete and stories and a whole host of other things. I was talking with someone on Twitter about the value and enjoyment you get for reading about a place before you go and visit there. And it's almost like you get to visit twice. You get to visit once through the eyes of a person who was there. And then you get to visit on your own. And, and in the same way that a movie will color the way you see something. So like when I read the Harry Potter books when I was younger, I had one vision of Harry Potter. And then when I saw the movies, Daniel Radcliffe became Harry Potter. So when I read this book to my kids now, it's Daniel Radcliffe that we all picture. And reading books about a place is like that, but you only, it's not as strong. It's not as intense. You still have some malleability in your own interpretation and your own observation of the situation. So Natural Born Heroes is a good book. It wasn't as great as McDougal's earlier one, Born to Run, but it was something that I very much enjoyed. And if you have any interest in visiting Greece or the Greek islands, it's highly recommended. One. I mentioned in the last podcast episode that I had read a book called A Guide to the Classical Education. And what this book... Uh, inspired me to do was to revisit things or learn things but start at a really simple level. So one thing that this book suggests is that if you're going to homeschool your children in the classical method, you should introduce classical texts at age-appropriate levels. So you you read a, a book about the Iliad or the Odyssey to a kid that's a picture book and it's an adaptation. And then when they get into middle school, they read a book that's slightly harder. And then when they get to high school, they actually read the Iliad and the Odyssey. And because I don't have any experience with, with those classics, 
that's what I did. I jumped into the middle grade levels and I read this book called Black Ships of Troy by Rosemary Sutcliffe. And this was a wonderful introduction to the Iliad. The book uh, covers the story um, in uh, a short 130 some pages and it keeps it keeps the locations and it keeps the characters the same but it's definitely an easy read it was something that some uh, someone that was in middle school or, or high school or, or an adult that doesn't have any experience like me can handle the one part of the book that really had the most impact on me was this idea of how um, how things were explained in the book, how supernatural forces were explained. And, and so there's this instance in the book um, where after, after um, someone has died, that they have this funeral for this person who has died. And um, the men of, of the Greek army, the men who are sieging Troy, have this feeling of fear come about them because they're worried because this person who has died was a hero to them. It was someone who had led the charge. It was someone who they don't believe they can continue to fight and, and, and win the city of Troy and Helen of Troy if they don't have this hero anymore. And, and so the, the leaders, the other leaders of the Greek army that are still alive say, no, 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 that's not fear you're feeling. That's the sensation of Thetis coming out of the sea to, to visit this funeral. So what they've done is, is they've acknowledged that this thing exists, this fear exists, this, this unexplainable internal thing exists. And rather than saying that it's something like, oh, um, you know, a fear that, that is going to inhibit your actions, that, that is going to prevent you from fighting well, they're saying, no, 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 this is a good thing. They're re the Greek leaders are reframing it to be something that is explained by the gods. And, and all of the gods are are really interesting in their roles in this story where gods come into the story and then gods go out of the story and, and gods are pleased with, with something happening, but but the gods get busy doing something else and leave before, you know, some act can be consummated. Uh, but it was, a, it was a wonderful little book and this idea of the gods playing roles in people's lives um, makes a lot of sense when I started to think about it as something that uh, explain supernatural forces that, that explain things that were unexplainable at the time. So if you're curious about uh, the, the history of the Iliad or, or, getting, or, uh, or getting started into it, this book was, was an introduction that I found fantastic. Two. Jim O'Shaughnessy joined his son Patrick O'Shaughnessy on the Invest Like the Best podcast. And this podcast had a really positive growth mindset attitude where Jim O'Shaughnessy um, just seems to believe that, that you can achieve anything in life if you're disciplined and you put in the commitment to learn it. And I really appreciated that, that advice from him. O'Shaughnessy is someone who's, who's had a lot of success in, in his life and that mindset that, that you can do things um, was wonderful. The, the quote that really stood out uh, from the podcast interview that, that Jim said was this, quote, investing is like dieting. There's a million diet books on the market today. Most of them have simple, easy to execute plans. And it is remarkably difficult to get anyone to use that simple system. And it's all emotion, end quote. So if you have the, the discipline to do something, whether it's to read more or to write more or to podcast more, whatever, whatever the verb you want to do, whatever the action that you want to do is, if you're disciplined about doing it, you'll start to make progress and you'll start to, to get somewhere. I remember hearing a story, um, and I can't, 
I can't find it on Google, so so maybe it's not real, but there's a story that epitomizes this where there was this blogger or writer who wondered about the LL Cool J workout system where, you know, there's P90X and there's Insanity and there's um, there's the cycling programs that you, you get on your bike, whether it's in your house or it's in a studio. Well, well, of course, LL Cool J has this diet and fitness program. And so this writer wanted to know, you know, what if I just did this? Like, you know, LL Cool J doesn't necessarily know anything or, or maybe doesn't know any more or any less than these other people. And, and he found out that it worked. So if you have a system, it doesn't really matter what the system is so long as you are consistent and stick with it. And if it's moving you into right, the right direction, then you'll get there. And as far as reading goes, reading is a really a simple system. It doesn't necessarily matter what you read. It doesn't matter if you read my book recommendations or the New York Times bestsellers. If, if, you, if you read, you, you'll, you'll learn things and you'll take things and you'll apply them into your own life. This is what O'Shaughnessy says about reading. Quote, you can make yourself a better person in virtually every category, whether you have a natural talent or not. If you read, 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 and then read some more. End quote. Three. Jeff Anello was on a couple of podcasts, not recent, but um, he's got some podcast interviews out there if you search for his name. And Anello is the co-conspirator of the Farnham Street blog. It's one of my favorite blogs on the internet. It might be my favorite blog on the internet. And Anello, in these two podcast episodes, does a wonderful job of clarifying mental models for me. And the, the, the linchpin for this, the thing that really turns it around, is he compares mental models to tools. And he does a great job of explaining how mental models are like tools. And if you can visualize a toolbox with your hammer and your pliers and your screwdriver and your drill and your saw and your level and your, and your square, if you can visualize a toolbox of those things, and then just replace those tools with mental models, you'll have a good idea of some of the work that he and Shane Parrish at Farnham Street do. Anella describes a mental model like this. Quote, a mental model is a tool that helps you understand some particular aspect of how the world works. End quote. So it's something you can apply to a situation to get a result that you're hoping for. And just like any tool in a toolbox, you have to be proficient at using them. You have to be, you have to be um, aware of how a saw cuts, or you have to know how to change the depth of the blade of a saw. And Anello says this, quote, I think an efficient decision maker is like a chess player that has studied a lot of games and can very quickly call to mind other moves that have been made and what the best moves are, end quote. So Anello wants you to have pattern recognition. He wants you to get your reps, your reps, your reps. This is what Arnold Schwarzenegger said about uh, getting that kind of practice. It is reps that count. The more often you do something, I am a big believer in practicing and practicing and practicing. Why? Because the more you practice, the better you get and the more it becomes second nature. And then slowly the fear goes away that you may not be able to remember your lines when you go for an audition or the fear that you maybe uh, sound stupid and that you're not going to pull it off or whatever it is. It is always that the more you practice something, the more confidence you get and the better you're going to perform when you go to those auditions in the first place. So reps, reps, reps. So we have our analogy that mental models are like tools. And we understand that you need to have practice and experience using those tools. You have to get in your reps if you're going to use them well. And 
The next thing we can expand with this analogy is that you have to enjoy collecting tools. You have to be someone that enjoys working with wood or bending metal or programming things. And, and this is what Anello says to that. Quote, what's constantly exciting to me is getting lifelong tools in the toolbox. End quote. So you have to enjoy the, the, the things that you're going to use. I, I like cutting things with wood and I like, uh, I like doing that work and so I have some of those tools in my garage. But I don't necessarily enjoy making candy, which is another thing that we can, we can collect tools for and use those tools for a desired outcome. So if you have the tools and you enjoy using the tools, you'll be more likely to use them and you'll go ahead and you'll continue to get those reps. And the last part of this tool analogy is the idea of opportunity cost. And this is what Anello says. Quote, like everything in life, reading has opportunity cost. The time you spend reading articles online is time you're not spending reading something deeper and longer lived like a book. End quote. So our tools, our tools, the things that we're using, these mental models that we're building through reading has opportunity cost. So if you're going to go in the garage and you're going to spend an afternoon working on a wood project, like building chairs or sawhorses or something like that, then that's time you can't spend doing something else. And the same goes for reading. If you're going to spend time reading, building mental models, that has to be valuable and enjoyable for you because it's time you can't spend doing something else. And Anello's point is that there's probably a lot of low-hanging fruit in our lives, like scrolling through Twitter. Well, for me, it's scrolling through Twitter or refreshing YouTube or doing a whole host of other things that, that aren't things that I want to do. They're, they're tools that I'm building um, that, that aren't valuable to me. There was a, a Josh Brown tweet where he said something uh, to the extent that his son could get a job um, even though he's 10 years old, if the job is swiping glass. And, and, and what I got from that is that Josh Brown's kids, like my kids, really enjoy swiping glass on their iPads and their other devices. So the things that we do, we get, we get experience doing them. We build up the reps, and we should focus on things that, that bring value to us and that are enjoyable to us. And they're tools in a toolbox that, that are important. Four. One commonality of successful organizations and successful operators within organizations is that they tend to argue well. They tend to have a combative but friendly relationship where they can really hash out details and people can argue their points back and forth. And, and sometimes that's really important. There was a conversation between Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder where Gene Wilder was, was talking with Mel Brooks about getting, getting some, uh, some part of a scene into the movie. And and Brooks is like, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And, and Wilder says, well, well, here's the reason why. And Brooks says, I still don't believe you. And, and Wilder says that he really got worked up about it. He was getting red in the face and he was yelling, um, he was yelling about it to get this, to get this part in the movie. And, and Brooks was just kept pushing back and pushing back. And all of a sudden Wilder says, Brooks says, okay. And Wilder's like, what? And Brooks says, yeah, that's fine. And, and Wilder's like, well, wait, what do you mean? Did I like, did I just convince you? And, and, and Brooks said, well, you know, I thought it would be a, a good idea if you argued for it. If it was something you believed in, you would argue for it. And, and since you argued for it and you were so passionate about it, we'll go ahead and put it in. And so we have, we have Mel Brooks, and, and he understands that, that Gene Wilder is well-versed in comedy. He's someone that understands the situation. He's someone that has some experience. And, and so he's willing and able to, to argue with him and then listen to him when it, when it turns out that he was, he was passionate about something. This first clip is from John McCain's interview with David Axelrod. 
You know, it was Bob Dole that said that uh, Ted Kennedy could eviscerate you on the floor in his speech and then come in the cloakroom and convince you that he wasn't talking about you. <laughs> but you know the thing about Ted Kennedy, the reason... You that, guys once menaced each other in the oh, well of the Senate. we fought and we would fight and we would... And then we would finish the fight and would put armor on each other. I'd never forget. He'd say, yeah, we did pretty good, didn't we? You know, I mean, he was... Because he divorced personal relationships and personality from the issues. So therefore, if you were friends with Ted Kennedy, that friendship worked. Our advice from McCain then is to have friendships and to understand people and to have empathy with people. And and if you understand the person and you can understand that the person cares about you and is and is on your side and is and is maybe not agreeing with you but working towards uh, some of the same goals, then it's a little easier to 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 disagree with them. Another place besides the Senate floor where there's a lot of disagreement turns out to be Google. This is a clip from Kim Malone Scott's interview on Recode with Kara Swisher. So Google, talk about that because that was an unusually managed company. Like Google was Google was awesome. And tell me what why what was that? So I, I'll never forget shortly after shortly after I joined, watching Matt Cutts and Larry have this Larry Page have this argument about something. I don't even remember what. But I really liked Matt. I had gotten to know know him and he he starts yelling at Larry. And, and I was just looking at, at Matt and listening to what he was saying, and I was starting to worry. Oh, my gosh, Matt's going to get fired, you know. And then I looked at Larry, and he's just got this big grin. His whole face is lit up. And, the, and it was not – it was just such a productive way to have arguments that it was sort of inspiring. Yelling. Yelling. Not always yelling. Right. In this case, challenging. they were challenging and being willing to challenge authority. And the authority – sort of welcoming it. One commonality between the Senate floor and uh, the Google offices is that both Ted Kennedy and John McCain and uh, the executives at Google all had something called career capital. They had always sort of, um, they had all talk the talk and walk the walk. So they were able to argue. You're able to disagree with Larry Page, I would, I would presume, because you've, you've shown your worth. You've been able to, to do something. And if we look back to a previous podcast, the one about Eric Maddox and um, his interrogations, in Iraq, we can we can see we can see this then too. So Maddox went in as this interrogator to a remote outpost in Iraq. It was somewhere off the beaten path, and and as he's there, he's learning that the interrogation techniques he was taught aren't well suited for the situation that he's in. He he thinks that when he's in the training, that if they were using those techniques on him, it wouldn't break him. And he's, he's finding out that if he's using those techniques in the field, that he's not breaking anybody. Nobody is, is, is becoming threatened and giving up valuable information. People are threatened and they give up any information, whether it's true, false, or made up on the spot. So Maddox has to find a better way of doing things. He has to rebuild the interrogation system. But, but remember, remember, Maddox isn't, he's not, um, hot shit. He's not, um, like an ace at this time. He's not known as the person who's going to find a high-level um, person of the opposition. He's, he's, he's nobody. He's, he's sent to, to Crete in Iraq because 
um, all of the good translators, all of the people who have direct experience with the, the, the language of the area are in a, in a more important area. So Maddox has this theory and he's got this idea that he wants to pursue, but he doesn't have the career capital yet. He wants to get in the situation where he can argue well, where he can talk with his superior that's leading the special operations forces in the area, and he wants to get him to do certain things. But he has to build up a track record. He has to build up career capital before he can ask about doing those things. And through a lot of work, Maddox ultimately builds up that capital and he gets the special forces leader to trust him. And they end up going on some raids and they get some information that through a lot more hard work, Maddox is able to kind of pin down um, the location where Saddam is. And then just as he's shipping out because his tour of duty is up, the special forces, they, they find Saddam Hussein as Maddox is on his way back to the United States. But the arguing well, he was only able to disagree and he was only able to promote his ideas, his, his accurate ideas, because he built up the career capital through experience and results. Five. The Exponent FM podcast has continued to be fantastic. James Allworth and Ben Thompson do a great job of talking about technology and breaking things down and explaining things as they relate to certain theories and systems. And their episode number 108 talked about how technology is uh, affecting people, how the growing pains we're going to have to go through with technology uh, and are very similar to the growing pains we went through through the Industrial Revolution. And this is uh, from what I wrote on the blog, thewaiterspad.com, this week. Uh, it starts off with a, a uh, quote from Ben Thompson. He says, quote, Any space that has any sort of routine work and generates data is very susceptible to automation. Data is what allows the learning to take place. It's the application of these learning algorithms to data that allow this sort of intelligence. End quote. So right now, Thompson says we're in this, this stage of uh, um, artificial intelligence, this stage of automation that, that's, quote, basically statistics gone wild, end quote. So he believes we're at the start of seeing um, artificial intelligence and machines starting to program other machines. And there's going to be a, a lot of shifts in the workforce. There's going to be a lot of things that are going to be done by machines if, if that's the case. In the episode that the guys talk about, um, oncology results are starting to be read by machines, where machines are being trained to, to identify what is uh, cancer on a, on, a, um, on a presentation and, and what is not. So all jobs are susceptible. When we start to think about automation, um, my first thought is, is obviously the one that's most available. There's some availability bias, and it's the self-checkout at the grocery store, where there used to be two lanes that were operated by two cashiers. There's now six stations for someone to check out, and there's, there's one cashier there that's sort of supervising it and, and helping people when their red light goes off on the top. And so that's a really clear idea of automation, and that's a relatively low-skilled job that the people... Um, that people come, people use as an example for automation and artificial intelligence. But in the podcast, the um, Thompson and Allworth talk about the whole host of areas. Anything, anything that generates data and that has routine work, Thompson says. And and you can see how a physician, a physician's office would do that. I was talking to a doctor the other day, and and a lot of uh, what they diagnose is is routine. There's a lot of okay. Um, here are your test results. You have diabetes. Here is your uh, throat swab. You have strep throat. Um, 
flu is going around, uh, you have the flu. In fact, I, I wonder how, how you could predict the flu symptoms based on the Google flu trends and the searches associated with that and some simple measures like temperature or achiness or things like that. It seems like that is a lot of data that could be used to, to predict or, or to diagnose the flu. But um, the, the point of my post was to compare another technology to, to some of this automation, and that's the, the technology of, of the shipping container. Once the shipping container was introduced, there was a whole host of things that happened. There was a whole series of dominoes that fell because this one thing that was invented. Uh, the shipping container was invented by this name, man named Malcolm McLean, and, and this is what Ian Castle uh, wrote about McLean. Quote, Malcolm McLean is known, or actually unknown, for having reinvented the modern role of global trade. His impact on transportation is right up there with Henry Ford, and yet his story remains relatively unknown. McLean invented the shipping container and the ships that moved them around the world. And with this change, entire industries vanished. From 1967 to 1976, New York City lost one-third of its manufacturing jobs. Another victim was the garment industry. Quote, with an ample supply of cheap labor and a well-established distribution network, New York was prepared to meet the demand, end quote, at the turn of the, the 20th century, according to Wikipedia. But shipping containers changed all of those rules for labor and distribution. Ship, of course, with shipping containers, dock workers also saw their jobs go away. It was contraction through attrition. What used to be a really good job that could be passed down from father to son to his son to his son and so on down the line just evaporated and e entire neighborhoods left. So just in the shipping container, we have uh, this huge reduction in the garment industry. We have this huge reduction in the manufacturing industry. And we have this huge reduction in the dock worker industry just in one city, just in, just in New York City. Technology is like a river, whether it's artificial intelligence or automation or statistics gone wild or something as simple as a shipping container. And once that river changes, once that river moves to a different path, the ecosystem around that river changes too. Trees don't grow as tall or, or new trees grow taller and different animals will survive and thrive and just different animals will die. And that's a growing pain. That's, that's, that's part of this technological transition. And while the outcome at the end of the line may be positive, there's going to be some rough spots along the way. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. If you've made it this far and you like some of the things I talk about, I've got this new paid newsletter that's available to subscribers. It comes out once a month, and what I wanted to do was to create something that... Um, was offline. I, there, this is all content that, that I could fit on my blog, The Waiter's Pad, and that would fit on my blog, thewaiterspad.com, uh, but it's something that, that I wanted to change the venue of. I know that context matters. I know that situations matter. I know that we, we do things in one situation that we don't do in another situation. And I realized in my own reading habits that, that if something was on a blog, I wasn't devoting as much time to it as, say, if I saved it to my Instapaper account. And the Instapaper account things weren't given as much thought and reflection as things that I printed out, like PDFs. And, and PDFs that I printed out weren't given as much thought as, as books that I bought. So Mike's Notes comes as a monthly PDF that hopefully you will print out and you will read without an internet connection and without all the internet distractions. And if you're interested in finding out more about that, there's a sample and a link to, um, a link to pay for that in the show notes today. 
Two other small bits of housekeeping. There won't be any episode next week on April 12th be, um, because of uh, some some travel situations. And if you ever see an episode in your podcast feed that says CLIP in all caps um, as the first part of the episode title, that's a mistake that I made. I upload clips to use on the blog, thewaiterspad.com, and those clips that you heard in the podcast. So those are all backed up to SoundCloud, and I use them to embed from there, and I use them to link from there but they're not supposed to show up in the RSS feed. So if they do, it it means I made a mistake in not clicking a button. But uh, thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes.